Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson. And yeah, our golden ticket talks continue. In this episode, we talk with the second place male finisher at the 2022 Bandera 100K, Mr. Tyler Fox. Tyler is based in Lander, Wyoming, and has been quietly, at least in my opinion, been crushing some of the top mountain ultra trail races across the American West, including the Bear 100, the Speedgoat 50K, the Bighorn 100, and that's just to name a few. In addition to the recap of his race and his initial thoughts on Western States in June, we talk about his coaching business and the state of that profession in our sport, the trail running scene in Lander, Wyoming, what's exciting and concerning him most about the trajectory of our sport, as well as the issue of eating disorders among trail runners. Multiple listeners of the show reached out beforehand to note that Tyler may very well be the most underrated athlete on the American scene right now. And I think I agree. I'm excited to see what Tyler can do at Western States this coming June. Let's dig right in. Tyler Fox, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And also, I should say, congrats on snagging one of the golden tickets at the Bandera 100K this past weekend. I appreciate it. It was a really special day out there. And yeah, everything went, you know, close to or close enough to, to plan to, to be a good day. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of what transpired at Bandera and the lead up to it and what you're thinking about a couple of days removed from the event, I do want to touch on this one topic. And it's the fact that you've been in the sport for I would say quite some time. I'd call you a veteran at this point and you've had a lot of success, but at least in my opinion, you've gone quite under the radar. Do you have any explanation for that? Yeah. My wife asked me the same thing quite frequently. And um, I guess people that also listen or also follow along with my racing and, and uh, I'm a coach as well. So some of my athletes that, that follow along and are, are fans of mine ask the same question. And I don't have a good explanation for it. I'm not terribly social media active, um, and that might have something to do with it. But beyond that, uh, maybe I'm just picking the wrong events um, or the timing isn't perfect. But uh, regardless, I, I'm still having a good time, and, and it's okay not to have any pressure on the starting line. I think being a Bandera and not having you know, a matching kit and having other eyes drawn to, to you and, and wanting to, to beat you on the day is somewhat useful. Um, it takes a little pressure off. So not all bad things. I, on a side note, I love that description, by the way, the, the not matching kit, like until you become well-known to the world, you can wear like seven different brands on your body during the race. It's kind of cool. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And, and to follow up on that, um, I'm able to snag some really awesome deals, like finding kind of last year's models on sale for you know, 10 or 15 bucks and, and having, you know, kind of a fun, different t-shirt and, and that sort of thing is, is quite fun, if nothing else. And I don't feel compelled to wear something specific on race day. Right on, right on. Maybe we'll touch on the topic of athlete sponsorship later in the conversation, but let's turn to Bandera. Just for context, you got second place in the men's race. You took one of the two golden tickets. You're heading to Western States uh, in June. The first question I want to ask though is, there's at least three golden ticket races over the next three to four months here in the States. And I'm curious why you chose 
Bandera. I'm attracted to the competitive nature of the golden ticket events more so than the fact that they are golden ticket events. Um, Western wasn't necessarily the number one kind of, you know, like guiding light in my season. Um, especially my wife and I are actually having our first child in either late March or early April, if all goes according to plan. So the timing didn't seem perfect to be running Western this coming year anyways. And, um, but, a, but a January competitive race sounded nice. I live in Lander, Wyoming, which has pretty brutal winters and trying to train for anything kind of in February or March becomes more difficult as uh, the snowpack increases and also the temperatures um, you know, there'll be a week or two at a time where it won't break, you know, zero or five degrees for the week. So, so getting a race in earlier in the winter is beneficial. I was going to say, I scroll down your ultra signup page and it's a lot of historical mountain races here in the country. Speed goat, the bear, never summer, the San Juan solstice, the list goes on. I'm guessing you have a playbook for that type of race. Bandera is something completely different. It's a much flatter race, a faster course maybe talk a bit about your training methodology heading into this race and what you were doing differently to prepare yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm coached by David Roach, who is, I mean, this isn't the first time anyone has heard his name on this podcast. I'm sure he's an amazing coach and um, he's been coaching me for about four years. And I mean, he'd argue and I'd argue that maybe everything in the past four years has been kind of pointing towards this moment. So nothing that happened in recent um, training history was probably the key to success, but, uh, we did a lot of, I'd say flatter running, but that was more just a result of trails and kind of the more mountainous terrain I liked being, um, under snow for the season and, and doing a lot of work at kind of, the you know, one hour or more moderate intensity level, um, versus either going out and doing, you know, really big volume at a slow pace or, or doing, some of the faster interview intervals we'd be doing this time of year. Um, so just becoming efficient at running at a, you know, moderately moderate, hard clip. Um, and, and then trying to, you know, hold that for as long as possible and, and kind of take what the day gave us when we were out there. So. Mm. Well, one other question, and I'm curious about this because I want to make a comment first. I had this guy, Nick Curry on the podcast recently, and he just set the 100 mile world record on a track and he's a big proponent of negative splitting. And I've always been curious in these more competitive trail races, if that's a realistic strategy to pursue where, you know, you can feel comfortable sitting back maybe in the second wave of runners and slowly making your way up and still managing to be competitive. Is that something that you subscribe to or consider on race day? Or are you somebody who likes to take what the day gives you and if people are going out at a certain speed and you have a, a particular race goal, you're just going to follow that flow. I find that I run better towards the front because I feel like I'm in the shake of things um, versus relying on, you know, having that, that speed later in a race to pass people, which I'm assuming feels really nice. Um, I haven't experienced it so much. Uh, if I'm kind of in the, you know, uh, a few minutes or many minutes back at the halfway point, I might start to lose faith and, and perhaps not give the second lap, you know, with something like uh, Bandera, not give the second lap a, a good push. But um, I like running scared. I mean, I don't like running scared, but I find I perform a little better because there's more of a, a fear of failure versus having to find that kind of desire to turn it on and, and pass people when, when things hurt. It's easier to just hold on and, and 
hope and pray. So <laughs> that's really interesting. And so maybe give us a picture or insight into what the race looked like. So it started somewhat unbeknownst to me in the dark. So I found that out the night before and I found myself a headlamp, um, which was an oversight. And as a coach, that sounds a bit embarrassing to have that logistical component not dialed in until the night before a race. Um, but it starts out on rather technical terrain. So the first 10 miles, I'd say, are steep and rocky and, and kind of ankle breaking terrain. And it was dark and really foggy. And I started with, there's a kid, David, and then another great racer, uh, runner, Adam Mary, who were out in front of me at the very start. And I was trying to hang on to them and they took off and I couldn't keep up and uh, found that in the dark with the fog, I couldn't keep track of my footing and the trail markers and the technicality of the trail. So I wasn't necessarily getting lost, but I was taking kind of missteps on the trail and, and then having to look up and look around to find where the trail was going. Um, so I took a step off the trail, waited for the, the chase pack, if you will, to come around the corner and then hopped in line with them, um, just to take a little of that mental stress off of, of trying to find the trail myself. And as the light came up and the trail became less technical, I was feeling really good. And around mile 10, I decided to, um, kind of increase output a bit and caught up to Adam around mile 17 and took the lead from there and wasn't sure if I was going to be able to hold on to the pace that I was moving. Things felt really good, but it's hard to tell at, you know, two hours into a race, how things were going to feel six or seven or eight hours in, but I was feeling good. I've done enough of these things to know you're not going to feel good the whole time. And it's best to make up time when the opportunity allows. And um, I went ahead and led them through mile 42 when John, the winner passed me, and he was looking so good. Like he mm. had an amazing race. Um, and I held on. So Joe McConaughey, string bean, he's a like total badass through hiker, uh, and runner, as I found out in this event, um, got pretty close to me there towards the finish. I didn't know how close I had a feeling someone was, was making up time. So I really had to dig deep for that last five or 10 miles to the finish. And yeah, I just held them off long enough. That guy, he's had so many near misses in his golden ticket quest. There's a, I'll link to it in the show notes and in our weekly newsletter, but he actually made a YouTube movie about like a whole attempt to do Lake Sonoma and gorges back in the day and finishes like third and fourth in both of those races, just so depressingly close. And so uh, I guess that continued at Bandera, but um, very cool. So, and, and did the day go mostly smooth for you? The day went really smoothly. I have definitely made a lot of progress in kind of just general nutrition and kind of efficiency, you know, efficiency factor at aid stations and um, things came together out there this past weekend. Undoubtedly, my wife and my father-in-law were crewing me and they did a great job of keeping me moving through the aid stations without like hardly missing a step. Um, I had a low moment from mile, I'd say 35 through 40 or 45. And that's when John passed. So that certainly added insult to injury, but, um, but it also kind of kicked me into gear and I knew he was moving well. And I'd imagine he wasn't the only one who was moving well in the back half. So, uh, after I had my little pity party, I, um, you know, got some calories in the system and, and things turned relatively well for the, the final, uh, 10 or 15 miles. 
and I think I made an assumption earlier on in our conversation that you would be going to Western States in June. That is indeed the goal, correct? Correct. It is now. <laughs> and now that we're what, four or five days removed from the event, do you have any more thoughts that are coming into clearer focus about that in terms of how you're going to prepare and how much time and effort you're going to devote to it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll be tackling uh, parenthood for the first time around the same time, but I have a really supportive system in so many ways. So, and, and also I want to note that I'm not going to be the only person out there who has, you know, maybe a newborn or external stressors that get in the way of training and, and maybe having, you know, the best possible uh, build for a race and I have a really flexible schedule and um, flexible life in general and live in a great place to train. So, you know, I don't have any excuses not to, not to have a great training block going in. And I don't have a concrete goal. I, it's, it's hard to say just given the depth of competition, um, you know, being on the podium or being top 10 in my eyes are like a similar, uh, you know, goal to shoot for just given how many good racers are at that event and, and who can have a great day, who's not going to have a great day, who's going to make a mistake out there and, and fall off in the back third of the race. And the heat is such a factor. And, you know, there are just so many variables. There are at every hundred miler, but then you throw in a, a bunch of really fast men and women. And all of a sudden it's kind of a recipe for, for kind of a spectacle, if you will. So, you know, you've been in the sport a fair bit of time now, at least five or six years, maybe more. So you've had time to get a sense of what works best for you. Do you feel like the hundred mile distance is where you're the most comfortable or um, is this an area that's like always a challenge for you and you're still experimenting on what works and what doesn't? I've had the most success at the hundred mile distance compared to other distances. Um, I think part of that comes from the fact that I have more of a, I'd say like a mountain athletic background versus I didn't do track and field. I didn't do cross country in high school or college. I running was the punishment, right. For so much of my life. And so, so coming in with a different background, I think you have uh, talents that are more suited for problem solving um, talents better suited for kind of the mental component of, of those longer distance events. And, and also leg speed isn't always the determining factor at mile, you know, 85 or 90. Um, oftentimes it's not, it's who's, you know, <laughs> who's taken the best care of themselves or is in a good position or those sorts of things. So I think it evens the playing field a little more. Now, Western's obviously a really runnable course and, you know, Jim has won the past three years and that's largely due to the fact that he's a very fast and talented runner. Um, so yeah, certainly speed and, and athletic or running talent, I should say plays a large role at this event compared to maybe a hard rock or a UTMB even where, where I think, you know, efficiency hiking and efficiency moving over more technical terrain become more of a factor, but, but yeah, Western's fast and I'm excited for that challenge. And I, you know, it'll be interesting to see how I, how I line up on something like that. This is just a comment, but I like that you noted that leg speed isn't always a determining factor at these hundred mile races as a fan of the sport. I think that's what makes that distance so special and so exciting to watch because 
Uh, there's a, so many other variables that come into play. And I know people have analyzed that to no end, but it's, it's still something that's fascinating to me. And it's why I watch, especially Western states, because even among elites who have been racing for so many years, and by this point should know their bodies very well, it's, it's unpredictable if they're even going to finish, let alone put together a really competitive result. So just wanted to note that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, I mean, I'm such a fan of the sport. <laughs> you know, if I weren't going to be in Western, I would certainly be spending the day on my couch watching the event. So, <laughs> or hopefully, you know, being there and, and witnessing it in person as well. So, um, yeah, just thrilled. Right on. Well, let's pivot a bit. Obviously, I'm excited to to watch your race at Western in June and uh, wish you the best of luck in training. But there's so much more I want to cover in this episode the first thing I want to dig into is your coaching background. And we were going back and forth on email uh, before this recording. And you have described coaching as an unpredictably fulfilling career choice. And I thought that was an interesting way of describing it. And uh, how so? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so it mixes passions in a way that I didn't uh, immediately predict, I should say, or immediately recognize. Um, So I went to school with kind of a pre-med focus and, you know, one thing leads to another and <laughs> to pay rent, I was working construction after college and that sort of thing. So uh, life never goes hundred percent according to plan, but I did love the physiological perspective and considerations of, of what I was studying in college. And then around the same time, I was really investing myself and discovering my love of trail running and, and just running in general. And, um, yeah, so when the, the opportunity kind of presented itself to start coaching, which really started as more of a, a part-time hobby, if you will, um, it was, it was when I say unpredictably fulfilling, it's just a way of kind of, it, it transformed from kind of more of a means to an end, a way to like earn some side money into this career path that I feel like. I've evolved in so many ways as a coach and, and really like more deeply as kind of a supportive individual um, and understanding people in general and, you know, coaching brings in so many skill sets. And I think, you know, on the one hand, we all think about coaches, you know, a good uh, physiologist or somebody who can kind of interpret and um, deal with data and, and, and assign, you know, kind of scheduling and, um, training based off of that and there's a lot of that but also having someone who's kind of an amazing support system and like psychologically engaging and knowing uh what someone needs to hear and when they need to hear it um and just kind of having this you know my coach david roach would describe it as like the constant wind in your sails pushing you in the direction you want to go and and i think if we could have that for every aspect of life we'd all be better off and I'm just lucky I get to to provide that to athletes um, doing something that I also love doing. So, yeah, and and it's it's hard to describe just because, you know, I think I've I've heard other coaches talk that I wouldn't consider to be terribly, you know, strong coaches, if you will. But then they bring a, a completely unique perspective to it that I had never considered, and and they're talking about like, oh, okay, like we're talking, you know, Bandera, and we're gonna you know, try to find like really technical terrain in training to like replicate the like ankle breaking uh, aspects of that trail. And, and we're gonna, you know, 
dial in on some of those specifics. So I think it's, if you're paying attention, there's always something to learn and that applies to every career path. But um, yeah, I'm just really grateful that I've had that opportunity to to kind of make that progress and have had people believing me in me in the process and, and allowing me to make those mistakes and, and put a good step forward. So. I think a, a lot of people when they're looking at the coaching profession in our sport, will look at it in a very cookie cutter way. Like they're creating a Google sheet. They're going to give you your workouts and your easy runs and your recovery days and your long runs a week, two weeks in advance, stuff like that. And maybe you'll hop on a call and, you'll write it in from there. Um, you mentioned again, offline that, uh, each coach in the industry brings a different perspective and skills to the table. And maybe we can talk a bit about that and you can give us some examples because I'm curious to see how the coaching profession evolves over the years, because on another thread and I, I'm giving you a lot here and I apologize, but there's this idea that the industry is going to get more standardized in the next few years too, as the sport gets more money and gets professionalized. So I want to talk about it in the context of that as well. So what are your thoughts on the different skills and roles and responsibilities of coaches that people might not be aware of? That, that's a, something I ponder a lot. And I'll, I'll start with the standardization, especially. Uh, I think anytime the idea of standardization starts to make its way into the conversation, we have to be really careful because if you put everyone, every future coach in the same box, no one then comes to the table with a different outlook and no one comes to the table with um, a different skill set. And because coaching requires so many skill sets to begin with, um, whether that's, you know, a competent education with a physiological background or a competent education in sports psychology, or just being like, and, you know, like there are great coaches who are great salespeople as well. Like it takes, all these different talents to get your name out there and to prove competency. And, and it's a like evolving industry in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, the idea of ultra running coaching, I mean, this is before my time, but it wasn't in the conversation. And, and there are some, there are some coaches who made big strides in, in bringing it into the conversation and making it the industry that it is today. And, um, you know, full props to them. I think they did an incredible job. They, you know, I obviously have to thank them for, for providing the career in a lot of ways that I have today, but, but they had a lot of, mis they made a lot of mistakes. They had a large learning curve in the process as well. And, and I don't think the industry is well enough understood, or I should say, I don't think the sport as a whole is largely enough understood to standardize at this point. And, you know, like, <laughs> even within triathlons and, and cycling and the coaching involved with that, there are still new methodologies being implemented. And those are like highly standardized coaching industries. So I think it would be, um, you know, we're a little early to totally standardize the industry and, and standardize what it means to be an ultra running coach. One thing I've always wondered, again, as a fan of the sport and as somebody who is interested in how people make a living, coaching included, I've always wondered if coaches have certain expectations of other coaches, like, oh, you needed to basically go to school to be an ultra running coach. Like you needed to have a bachelor's in kinesiology, 
a master's degree in, in that same field. Maybe you've published some papers on hydration and other topics. And I'm just wondering if there's leniency within the current group of coaches in our sport where like, you know, if you're just somebody who is interested in reading the literature, you have a close eye on athletes and you're interested in like continuous improvement, you're a coach or you think, is there a fraternity sorority gatekeeper model where like you need to have XYZ degrees to be accepted? Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I would say both those types of coaches exist. Um, I'm never going to like put any names out there, but I think there are coaches that would like to see you know, those prerequisite degrees, prerequisite backgrounds. Um, but we also live in the 21st century and I don't think you have to, you know, pay like, what is a bachelor's, like a cheap bachelor's degree is going to run you $50,000. And a lot of the information that you need to be an adequate and even like highly competent coach long-term it's available for free online if you look in the right places and if you invest yourself in the right way. And um, I understand the desire to bring up the entire industry as a whole. And one of the ways of doing so is education and maybe even, you know, I don't want to say forcing that education, but going back to the previous word, standardizing that education. Mm. But like I said as well, I think that takes away from some of the outside thinking that's going to come in with different backgrounds. Um, my coach, David Roach, was practicing law before he found what I think is likely, and most people would agree, is likely his true calling as, as a running coach. And, um, you know, like he's taken skill sets from his previous career, and he's put them towards his current career, and he's great at what he does. And because he doesn't have a background in physiology and or a bachelor's in physiology I should say doesn't you know take away from the fact that he's a great coach and I'm not the only person that would think that so mm. I'm completely in your corner that you don't need to go to college to study all of the information that you need to be a good coach on the other hand we don't really have a credentialing system in the sport yet for coaches and I think the only downside I see to that right now is it's very difficult for athletes to make a sound decision about who the right coach is for them. Because like you said, there are people that are great sales persons and getting their name out there and recruiting athletes that way. There's also people like yourself and others who um, don't do social media, but your reputation speaks for itself. And I'm sure it's passed through circles and, and you recruit athletes that way. So there's just two sides to the coin. And I think both are valid. And I'll be curious to see how that gets settled in the next, let's just say three to five years. Yeah. And I agree. I think one of the arguments I've heard, or maybe counter arguments to what I just said would be along the lines of if you have someone who gets the wrong coach and has a bad experience as a result, they may be, well, first off, a coach has a lot of power and can do a lot of damage if they aren't careful. And I've seen some of those stories as well. And so yeah, it's that's you know obviously the counter argument to what I just what I just said, and and it it holds some some value for sure because um, and running is really destructive to the body, and if done in a poor methodological way, that's not the right way I wanted to phrase that. If done in in an um, unorganized way or a way without too much precaution, you can cause some long term damage to somebody's physiology in, in a way that's 
yeah, in a way that's dangerous and and should be, you know, watched out for, certainly. So Well, I'll tell you, on this podcast, we love having discussions about some of the major topics that are going to shape the future of the sport. I think that coaching is one of those. I think it's one of the most important discussions we can have right now as so many new athletes are entering the sport. They don't know what to do. They're looking for guidance where people like you step in. So I really appreciate this. This is awesome. I do want to talk a bit about Lander, Wyoming. Our audience isn't that big, but maybe it is too big in the sense that the secret could get out. So yeah, cats out of the bag, <laughs> Lander, Wyoming, awesome place. Tell us what it's like. Why'd you move there? Yeah. <laughs> the why we moved here is a somewhat comical story. So back in 2019, my wife was through hiking the Continental Divide Trail. At the time we were living in a van. Um, we had a cat and a dog living in the van with us. Uh, I was training for races that season and I somewhat follow along with her as she was on the trail. So, um, you know, we'd have intersection points where I, you know, cook something good for dinner. She could spend the night in the van and then I'd see her on her way as she continued on the trail. It was a really high snow year as well. So we were flip-flopping, uh, meaning she started northbound. So coming up from the Mexico border, um, when we hit Colorado, there's too much snow. So we went north to the Canada, Montana border and she started southbound from there. And essentially the end point was right outside of Lander, Wyoming. And as she's finishing up, uh, a large black dog came out of the woodwork and seemed like it was going to attack her. Turned out it was just giving her a big hug. We ended up with this dog and we outgrew the van and rented a place in Lander, fell in love with it. We now have six dogs. We own kind of a small farm outside of town. And um, yeah, I'd say the rest is history, but like, I don't know what that means. We have so much going on and I'm sure it is not history. I think we'll continue to grow and over, <laughs> overbook ourselves. <laughs> what makes it a great place to train? Do you feel like you have all of the terrain that you need for the events that you like to specialize in? Absolutely. So the winter becomes a bit of a problem. The trails mostly shut down. We've had a really mild winter, which has been nice. So I've been able to do some of the, I'll call them like the front range town, the front range trails of town where they're kind of like more, I don't know, small trail systems, kind of mountain bike style. They, they try to pack a lot of mileage into a small area and, and it, it gets the job done. But we also live north of town on the Wind River Indian Reservation. And there are so many dirt road access points that go into the winds. And I do a lot of my training on those, um, which is always like really fun. I it's hard to describe, but it's very remote, very wild. Um, you know, I'll see, I, I've seen wolves on recent training runs. Um, if you get far enough back there, you might even see a grizzly or two uh see wild they're not technically wild horses they're known as feral horses because they don't they aren't recognized by the u.s government but um there are a bunch of feral horses out that that kind of pack out these horse social trails which can be really fun to run on um yeah so it's just a totally wild and unique experience and i i love where we live so do you have any sort of community there, uh, like training partners that you're running with consistently? Is Lander a place like, you know, Salt Lake City or Boulder or 
Flagstaff where you can just like phone a friend in the area and boom, you're doing a long run together or are you mostly doing things solo? So there are other trail runners in the area. Um, another well-runner, well-known runner from the area is Gabe Joyce. He's kind yeah. of a, a mountain running badass. Um, but most of us log a lot of solo miles. So uh, going into this event, I, I, I had a buddy actually visit and we did a long run together, but otherwise all of the runs were solo um, or occasionally Ellie will join on the bike depending on where we're running. But yeah, otherwise it's, it's a lot of yeah, quiet miles. You mentioned that you have a, a small hobby farm. And I'm not well versed in in the world of agriculture. So, a, what does that mean? And then, b, what's the status of it? Yeah, the status is growing. Um, we tried a sizable vegetable garden last year, and I think we really just became too busy with other things, and it got neglected and and didn't pan out. But we do have some. Oh, I don't even. We were up to like 15 goats at one point, and we sold some of them. Um, we have some pregnant goats right now. I think in a few months we'll have maybe eight to 10 goats. They're actually known for having, uh, triplets and, and twins. And, um, so it's kind of a, a wild card on how many we'll end up with, but we have them as dairy goats. Um, people are interested in buying the offspring. So, you know, if you find the right audience, it's somewhat self-sustaining. We had some sheep this year. We have uh, Ruth, the lonely cow. Um, yeah, so it's kind of an assortment of critters, and and uh, yeah, it's it's. I don't want to say a full time job, but definitely part time gig, keeping them contained and watered and fed, and um, never a dull moment. So, and then I'm guessing you're just more in control of your food supply. Like I don't know Lander well, but from what I understand about Wyoming, there are large swaths of it that would be considered food desert. So you're solving that problem potentially if Lander doesn't have all the resources that like a major metro area would have, like a no whole foods, I'm guessing. So that's really cool. I dig it. One other question I have, this is a question that we ask almost every guest on the show, because as, as you're well aware, the sport is undergoing this massive growth phase right now. There's a lot of people entering the sport, new races popping up. There's consolidation taking place with like UTMB uh, gaining a stronger position in the sport. Given all of that, I'm curious, what is concerning you most about the sport right now? Yeah, that's, you may have just kind of hit the topic with something like UTMB. Um, I don't, I don't have strong feelings on it, but I do wonder long-term what it will look like for um, some of those backyard races, uh, how, how they're going to compete with the likes of UTMB or the likes of Western States. And, you know, even the race I did this past weekend, it draws a competitive audience because of the fact that you can get a golden ticket for Western States. Um, if you're looking to be a competitive or uh, considered an elite runner in this sport, it's hard not to be attracted to something like Western or UTMB um, or a handful of races across the country that, that are awesome and like obviously amazing races, but there are so many other amazing races and those races are going to have trouble finding competitive runners to, 
to show up and, and give a name to their event just because we're all going to be trying to, you know, get into Western each year or go over to Europe and race around Mont Blanc. Um, so I, I am a little concerned about kind of the consolidation of the big ticket events and what that might imply for the, you know, still very ultra classic backyard mountain hundreds that I don't want to see disappear because I think they're everyone that I've done and every one that I know has done one loves those events and and it would be sad to see them have trouble you know competing against against the powerhouses in the sport yeah that's a great point I had not thought of that before because admittedly the fanboy in me is like imagine if every single elite male and female runner or at least a majority of them towed the same start lines. And I'm guessing that's what UTMB is going to make possible with their world series. But I hadn't considered the fallout of like, well, yeah, there is this issue of diluted competition, but it would be nice to see some sort of race take place at like the Wasatch 100 or the bear 100, or some of these maybe slightly lower tier, but still historical and notable races. And maybe we'll lose some of the, the flair and the competition there. How about, um, <clears throat> I've heard this before that if you're a sponsored athlete, and again, we'll talk about sponsored athlete life later on, but like, if you're a sponsored athlete, you're gaining access to all of the latest technology or the newest technology that's not available yet. And that gives you an unfair advantage because like, you know, an Adidas runner or a Hoka runner might have access to a new shoe or a new pack that gives them some sort of mechanical advantage. Do you subscribe to that as a major issue right now in the sport? Yeah, I think it could be an issue. Um. I mean, we see it in road running, right? With some of the regulations surrounding the current super shoe technology. So you can't have, you know, greater than a certain, I think it's like a 40 millimeter stack height or something like that. It's, it's tremendous, you know, that would, you would break your ankles on trails. Um, but as technology improves and perhaps the carbon plate will provide an advantage in certain races over time, I think, I don't think that's an unrealistic thing to consider. So, you know, a race like JFK or um, some buffed out West Coast 50K, 50 mile event, a carbon plate could very realistically provide an advantage. And if that's in a shoe that the rest of the world doesn't have, but a sponsored athlete running for that company has early access to, um, mm. you know, I don't, it's hard because it's, you know, like, can you prove that there's an advantage? Or does it matter if you can prove there's an advantage? Because even if there's a perceived advantage, the rest of the field might complain about, you know, that perceived advantage. So I think it would be in everyone's best interest to just be somewhat transparent with that and um, or at least address that problem sooner than later and say, you know, hey, let's <laughs> let's not let's not make this about who has the latest, greatest super shoe. Um, I think it's slightly more even because even out across the board, just given the technicality of trails and and a carbon plate is good in one uh, kind of continuing one line of momentum. Uh, it might not be quite as efficacious when when bouncing back and forth off of rocks, but um, you know I, there are certainly events that it could be. It's definitely going to be interesting to see how it plays out. To me, it's like the athletic equivalent of the rich get richer and people having early early access to game-changing technology. I haven't listened to the episode yet, but for listeners that 
Also subscribe to Dylan Bowman's Free Trail Podcast, which is a great, great show. He has an episode that just came out about his new sponsorship with Speedland. And we had their founders on the show about a month back. And it's like a $300 shoe. So the price point, it just, their market is very limited right now. But by all accounts, it's like superior technology. And um, if someone like Dylan Bowman believes in it and is going to use it because he's still at the top of his game competitively, there's got to be some advantage there. And uh, I, I just wonder if we're going to see more uh, examples like that where for a year, maybe even more, there's just going to be like an extended advantage among the elite athlete class versus like hobby joggers like myself. Yeah. And I, I was somebody even revise like my previous. So if you, if you were to watch um, a professional tennis player, for example, there's no doubt that they have advantages that the rest of us don't have. Um, they have probably a team dedicated to how they're going to string their racket to be, you know, best suited for whatever, whatever surface they're playing on, or, you know, perhaps it's better at, you know, uh, like based off of their competition, something along those lines. And they have the, the perfect diet and they have the Normatec boots and the hyperbaric chamber and they have 20, 30 hours a week dedicated to the recovery following their training. Now, that's obviously something we all like to see because it extends the exceptionalism of that individual. And something that's unique to the sport we're in right now is that you can tell the line at Western States and you can look left and right. I mean, if you like are lucky enough to get in through the lottery um, or snag a golden ticket, you look left and right. And the people who are vying for that podium position are lining up in the same place that the people who are going mm. to be running, you know, mm. 29 hours and 50 minutes. So it's, it's a more, you know, accessible elite aspect of the sport. And I think that's somewhat what's like beautiful and compelling about the sport as well. It's not like I, you know, if I play basketball, LeBron James and I are not even like within the same universe largely, and I'll never see him on the court, but you still have that opportunity within, within our sport. And I just would be hesitant to, to get rid of that aspect. And I think anytime um, you see it with some of the teams that are developing where people are really running full time, they don't have external stressors the same way that, you know, a father of five working a 40 hour week job has. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, just an interesting thought experiment, if nothing else. I think that's going to be the norm, by the way. I think that five years from now, my big prediction is that anybody that's a, a professional athlete in the sport, if they're not doing it full-time, it's by choice because they, some for some reason, prefer to have some alternative gig on the side to keep them balanced. But I think in addition to the running, they're going to have, you know, sports psychologists, they're going to have coaches, they're going to have a strength session every day. They're just going to have every single advantage in the book. And I think that's just in part due to money, but are there any, um, any other issues coming down the pipe that, that were you maybe in terms of brand involvement? So we talked about UTMB, we just talked about shoe technology and the relationship between athletes and their brands, any other potential issues to look out for as these major brands enter the sport? Uh, I would say as the major brands enter the sport and bring in more money, there's more incentive to take shortcuts, right? So um, shoe technology is one aspect and then doping regulation would be the other main consideration on my end as, you know, somebody who would like to compete against the same athletes with, you know, 
hopefully just the the uh, higher quality shoes and and not something um, exogenous and illegal. So <laughs> that would be the other consideration uh, mm. long term and mm. something we should probably lay some foundation in now, especially if you know, like you said, in five years the norm will be the professional athlete. Then I think the norm should also be um, some sort of regulated doping control. It's also interesting, and I just heard this through the grapevine, so I'm not sure if it's true, but I do like to speculate. So here I go. I've heard that, you know, as these major brands enter the sport, there's prize money associated. I've heard that some brands haven't paid out athletes this year that have won their events, despite like the promise, you know, whatever it is, thousand bucks for a first place podium finish down the line, male and female. So I think that's an interesting thing. And I don't want to name names yet because I don't know exactly who's involved, but stuff like that is interesting to me as well. Yeah. I've heard similar, similar mumbling. So and like, like you said, it's, it's best to wait, wait until something's confirmed before giving any specific names out. But we'll police it in due time. Let's go positive because I think it's good to, to spot the negatives because it just gives us something uh, to work towards and to make the sport as good as possible. But there are things that I think are promising with all this growth. I have my own thoughts, but what are you most excited about as the sport grows? I think the company involvement is a double-edged sword and kind of the, we, we've mentioned the bad aspects of it, but um, adding money into the sport, adding the ability for certain athletes to go all in and full time and um, limit their overhead stress and, and really just focus on running. That can only be a benefit for watching, um, you know, performances improve and, and kind of seeing kind of the peak end of human potential. Um, yeah, and then what was really cool about the past season was the increased coverage of various events. So now you can watch people racing or listen to the live commentary, um, you know, as a, yeah, as a fan of the sport, that's only, only a good thing. Uh, you've been an athlete in the sport for a while now. You've been a coach for a while now. You've had a large sample size of athletes to work with. Is there anything that you once believed, let's say in 2016, 2017, 2018, uh, relatively firmly that you have since changed your mind about with more experience and more data at your disposal? Yeah. Um, before I even really, so my first race was run rabbit run 100 and I had no idea what I was doing. It was, it was merely to check a box. I wanted to run a hundred mile race. I was convinced I'd hang up the shoes after that and continue on with my athletic journey. I actually, I, I used to rock climb a lot. I thought this running thing was just kind of a pit stop and I'd return to doing that at a you know, higher level long-term, but, but obviously I got hooked. But before that race, I had listened to some podcasts and kind of just whatever information I could get. And I had heard of some athletes doing the more kind of like that adapted approach to running. So I remember doing kind of bonked runs before that event where I wouldn't, I was working construction and I would, you know, maybe just eat some, whatever, like that I could pre-prepare and eat that throughout the day and then go on these runs and just feel awful. Um, and I, I'm not saying it doesn't work for anybody, but I strongly advise against any sort of keto style fat adapted approach to running um, with any of the athletes that I coach, um, anyone I talk with about it. And 
and yeah, just then fueling running and fueling it well and, and fueling inside and outside of running is, um, yeah, really important and, and a low hanging fruit. And I think a lot of runners, um, or from, and I, I'm not gonna say a lot, but I know I had some kind of eating disorder style things in my past. Mm-hmm. And if you're not careful, those can really surface in the world of running in a, in a destructive way. So, so kind of area on side of caution and making sure you have high energy always while running. Well, on a side note, I really appreciate the awareness about this issue. I have a, a buddy, a fellow runner in the community, Logan Williams, we've had on the pod. He runs for Solomon, and he's also been public about this stuff, which is awesome. And when you're selling the, like the value proposition of eating well, how do you convince your athletes that that's like the way to go? Like, oh, if you eat better, you're going to have a better race, or you'll be in the sport longer. Um, I'm kind of rambling here, but uh, yeah, what are the pros to to this approach that you've come across? I think you you nailed two of them, right? So your longevity in the sport's going to increase just given less, sorry, I'm sure you can hear dogs barking in the background, um, you know, more injury resistance and less burnout. Um, I think you'll adapt quicker to the training load you're taking on. So if there's not substrate available, you can't repair muscle. You can't, um, uh, can't continue to increase training load over time just because you'll break down at a faster rate than you'll be able to sustain. And that leads to those injuries we're talking about, whether it's soft tissue or perhaps bone, or even you just mentally burn out because you're tired of going for runs and Mm. feeling like a slug. Um, And then additionally, when you go out and run for three or four hours and you don't fuel it, you have a hard time enjoying that especially towards the back half when everything feels especially sluggish and so so once an athlete starts to adopt that and and really focus on the fueling um it kind of sells itself but yeah i do run into some difficulties early on when working with athletes um especially kind of with i'm not going to say disorders but perhaps you know fueling hesitancy we'll call it um getting them to adopt it and buy in can be a challenge, but as soon as someone does, it's, you know, smooth sailing from there because, um, you know, not always smooth sailing, right? Like these things don't fix themselves overnight, but, but at least they have an example of when it worked for them. And that's, that's as good as anything I'm going to be able to tell them. Maybe you are a good person to ask this question. It's something I have always been fascinated by are there any injuries that come to mind that can be essentially attributed to improper fueling? Like when you think of injuries like stress fractures, for example, is that mostly a function of overtraining or uh, is it more along like the, the fueling front? I'm, I'm curious there if you have any insight. Yeah. And I'm always hesitant to give kind of a blanket statement, you know, of course, uh, because there are always exceptions to it, but I'd say, especially with stress fractures, often that's, of fueling and, and often overtraining and underfueling go hand in hand. So you can take on a much larger training load if you have the proper fueling on board. Um, so you could say like every overtraining injury is also somewhat related to an underfueling issue and vice versa. But um, I would say with 
females, especially in the endocrine disruption that comes from underfueling training, that can oftentimes lead to some some larger scale bone issues that could be avoided with with meeting caloric demands mm. or even overdoing caloric demands. Well, again, we talk about topics that are evergreen and are going to be really important for years to come. I think that the fueling one is a big one because obviously our sport has a pretty interesting history when it comes to burnout and overtraining. And I think a lot of people love the sport as you and I do, and they want to be in it for five, 10, 15, 20 years or for their entire life. And I think this is probably one of the essential areas of education for all athletes. So again, just wanted to say that I'm grateful for your thoughts on it and your experiences with it. And I hope it's a conversation that is, that is had more often. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And like I said, none, none of these issues will be fixed overnight. And like, you still see people at the top of the sport, you know, like someone like Jim Walmsley, and you're like, that guy looks a certain way and runs a certain pace. And maybe if I replicate that, I'll also have that success. But from my understanding, he eats a tremendous amount inside and outside of running. So it's not, you know, he's not restricting to make that happen. And that's the big distinction for a lot of us that needs to be made. You know, he's being properly fueled. And that's kind of the, the common denominator behind good performances. Before we wind down here, and, and by the way, I've, I've loved this conversation and really appreciate your time. I realized that I've been a bad interviewer and I, I've missed an essential question. And that is, what, what's your intro story to trail running? Like, how'd you get into the sport and what attracted you to it? And how did you get to this level of just being one of the better runners here in America? I grew up doing, I don't know, I'll call them mountain sports, right? I grew up. In Colorado, my family were big skiers and big hikers. Um, and in high school, I actually had a really bad skiing injury that kind of made, helped me make a transition into rock climbing a good bit. And then in college, that was my major focus. I still joke that I likely have spent more time climbing than I spent running. And um, yeah, I lived on my car for a while and did the kind of dirt bag climbing culture scene and really enjoyed it, but came back to school somewhat energized on, you know, finding a skill set that would allow me to maybe not scrounge around in dumpsters for food at different points in life. And um, so I was, yeah, highly focused on, on school and running became a more time or a time efficient way to get out and explore um, my backyard at the time, which was Boulder, Colorado. And I found a lot of crossover between, um, you know, scrambling in the flat irons and, and just the ability to go out and have a proper backyard adventure um, on a time budget that, that rock climbing didn't allow to the same extent. So that was the transition. And then I, I came in with, or I, I joined a good kind of uh, group of individuals who really mentored me early on and that was Rocky Mountain Runners. Um, the group leader, Ryan Smith, is a total badass. His wife, Silke, is also a total badass and there are so many badasses in that, in that group. And so, yeah, just bouncing ideas off of them, going for long runs on the weekends. Um, and yeah, I think one thing led to another and I ended up working with David Roach and, and kind of having a little more structure to my training. And I went, yeah, once again, the rest is history, but 
I don't know what that means because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more to come, hopefully. One comment, one question. The first, we, we just had Marianne Hogan on the podcast, and she obviously won the women's race at Bandera. And it's funny because she mentioned that she got her start in trail running in Boulder, Colorado about five years ago. And she specifically mentioned her time with the Rocky Mountain Runners as being so formative to her growth and the opportunities that she had with like Solomon running and her pro career. So it's just very cool that you both share that same sort of upbringing in the sport. My other question that I wanted to ask is about your climbing background. And I'm curious because you're so firmly embedded in trail running now, are there any elements of the climbing experience and maybe the climbing culture specifically that you miss that just isn't there for whatever reason in the trail running world? Yeah. And I've given this a lot of thought because they're similar in so many ways and, and then vastly different. Um, there isn't the same competitive, or there wasn't, I should say, the same competitive aspect of climbing when I was involved. So obviously since then it's become an Olympic sport and there's this whole kind of professionalized training oriented aspect of it now. But when I was doing that, that certainly existed for people who were really like pushing the top end of the sport. But for a lot of us, it was a chance to, you know, go push our own limits. And um, the cool thing is you could be doing it at the same crag as, you know, your friend who might've climbed a couple grades easier than you, or someone is there climbing a couple grades harder than you. Everything's a little more condensed and, and, um, one small touch of a rock has a lot to offer for people of varying um, experience and, and talent levels. And then, I mean, the dirtbag culture is so different as well, just because you can climb 10 hours a day, all day, or, you know, all week long, but you can't do the same thing running without having you know, some point. maybe mechanical issues surface. So there's that aspect that I think is really appealing about climbing, but also quite time consuming. and. I think that's why you see climbers who really dirtbag, live on the cheap, work three months out of the year, and then climb the rest of the time. And with runners, that could get a bit boring just because you can't go out and run, you know, 30, 40 hours a week. I mean, you can if you're Killian or someone, but most of us are, are incapable of that. So it's, it's funny. That's probably like the one major downside of our sport. And you just hit the nail on the head, and that is it's not really this renewable resource. It just beats us down. And it's a good week. If we can even get 10 hours time on feet, 15 is amazing. That's probably elite. It's just, it's so punishing. Whereas in, in cycling world or the climbing world, as long as you're getting in the calories, you can go forever. And also you want to talk about an area that's has kind of an, uh, an unspoken or under-discussed somewhat eating disordered element to it. Uh, climbing can get, get a little I don't know. Yeah. People start counting calories and eating too little because it is largely a, you know, power to weight ratio. And, and there's one of those that you can largely control and that's the weight side of things. And mm. so that, that definitely exists there and, and people run into issues, but uh, Inter yeah, anyway, that's a parallel, but not a good one. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Um, well, let's go to the lightning round and I just have I have two questions. The first is, is there a recent podcast or book or TV show uh, or song that you've consumed recently that has left a big impression on you? Maybe it's changed the way you think and see the world and it would be worthwhile to share with the audience. Yeah. 
Uh, I just recently saw The Alchemist on Netflix. I know it's in theaters. I mean, we don't really have a theater in Lander. So um, my wife and I saw it recently. And it's about Marc-Andre Leclerc. And he was a free solo alpinist. Or that was, you know, he was a climber. But one of the things he was world-renowned for um, was solo alpine ascents of really big, yeah, badass mountains and in <laughs> cold climates and um i mean it's it's stunning watching what he was doing even with a rope it would be stunning but but without one it's just i i mixed and ice climb a little bit i'm like by no means an expert but what is kind of maybe understated in that video is his ability to place a metal point on a shallow rock edge and then know how to position his body so that that thing didn't pop off and, you know, sent him cartwheeling into um, open space. And it's just, it's mind blowing. So. Next question. If you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? Yeah. And one of the thoughts that came to mind, sorry, I don't know if I'm supposed to know this question beforehand. <laughs> um, but I had my senior quote picked out. And at the time, I kind of got a little bit of, I don't know, slack for it from uh, fellow classmates. I think no one really understood it. And I felt a little silly about using this as my senior quote, but I kind of stand by it today, especially. Um, I don't know, the older I've got, the more significance it holds. But it was an old Warren Miller quote, and it was something to the effect of, don't take life too seriously. Nobody makes it out alive. And yeah, I think like whenever we start to stress about something that, you know, means a lot to us running, for example, or whatever it happens to be, um, it's important to have that kind of as background noise, just making sure we, we keep it in a greater context of, um, yeah, life as a whole. And the fact that we have a limited time here and we're going to have a lot of, you know, hopefully some successes and, and also a lot of failures in that process and, and, and making sure we kind of keep in mind that it's not a judgment statement on the you know kind of person we are and, and not to take anything too seriously. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to take things too seriously. So it's a good reminder for me. Before we go, I want to make sure we do a little bit of plugging uh, you have a coaching business. If if people who are listening to this have been inspired to get in touch with you about your coaching services, how can they get in touch? Yeah, email would be best. So that's e and t coaching at gmail dot com. Um, and then I have recently redownloaded Instagram. I'm shuffling underscore four underscore snacks. Um, and yeah, I'd be able to respond to any messages on there as well. And we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes and on social in, in our newsletter as well. So we'll have you covered there. Maybe we should end this conversation where we picked it up. And it's sort of my um, bewilderment that you until now were relatively unknown. Have any sponsors been knocking at your door? And would you entertain that? Because you definitely have the ability to be on one of those teams. I haven't seen any offers yet. Um, I, yeah, I'm certainly willing to entertain the idea. Um, I 
I, I'm picky about certain products that I use. So, you know, if there are certain companies that would be interested that kind of fit the bill, I'd be very excited to talk about that. But um, yeah, I'm very fortunate that I have a supportive group of athletes that I coach and um, running shoes thus far haven't become, you know, too overly overpriced. And so, you know, worst case scenario is I can still go out and buy a pair of running shoes and run out the front door. Relatively low investment, but um, yeah, certainly open to the idea. Right on. Well, Tyler, it's been a great conversation. It's been great to get to know you and congrats again on the golden ticket to Western States. Maybe we will have an opportunity to reconnect after that. Yeah, I look forward to it. Yeah, hopefully with only, you know, good things to say. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. I just have the same usual requests. Please consider giving us a review in Apple, a rating in Spotify, and share us on social Instagram, Twitter, wherever you spend the most time. I know I say it all the time, but yes, it truly does help more folks discover the show. So thank you. As always, I am your host, Finn Melanson. I am grateful for your support and I will talk to you on the next